Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. It's time for the biggest week of the sports calendar. The start of hockey, basketball opening night, football, both college and pro in full swing, and the San Diego Padres are playing in the league championship series for some playoff baseball. You can use our promo code BLEAV, that's B-L-E-A-V, to get a 100% welcome bonus when you sign up with the link in the description to this episode. Bet online, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However, and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast. Live on the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is October 18th, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count, but we appreciate you stopping in, however and whenever it is that you may be listening. I mentioned yesterday that this is the uh, most chaotic week of the sports calendar. Uh, I mentioned that on our advertisement for Bet Online Sportsbook, with which you can get a 100% welcome bonus when you sign up. I mentioned that this is a crazy week, and starting today, the San Diego Padres, my hometown team, of which I've waxed poetically four or five times about over the past couple weeks, play game one of the playoffs, a game one of the league championship series at home for the first time since 1998. We have NBA opening night that's today, middle of football season, middle of college football season, which we talk about every Monday and on Wired Up podcasts like what we did this week. There's a game five between Cleveland and New York presumably going to happen tonight. I'm, I'm recording this on Monday evening and the game should have been over by now, but is currently in a rain delay. So wait and see what happens. There's just a lot going on in the sports world and I wanted to take time this week to address a situation that is much bigger than all of those games. And I specifically wanted to do this story this week because this Deshaun Watson story is not going away. And it's a conversation that's very easy to bury within the landscape of what October represents in sports. So specifically, I wanted to pick this week and this day in which the league championship series is beginning in which NBA opening night is in which you're coming off another NFL weekend that's very easy like we did on Monday to talk for 45 minutes about Buffalo and Kansas City and if we can make time to talk 45 minutes about Buffalo and Kansas City and other podcasts can take the time to talk 30 minutes about the New York Giants we can take 30 to 45 minutes here to talk about what is happening with Deshaun Watson and how we are about to proceed as more of a cultural perspective when it comes to how we're going to address Deshaun Watson returning to the NFL. And another reason I specifically wanted to talk about it this week is that we're still three to four weeks out from when Deshaun Watson is going to return to play football for the Cleveland Browns. 
His 11-game suspension from the NFL will end. This is week seven coming up, so we're still four to five weeks away from him returning to play. And it's important to talk about this now and not have it get buried because as I've talked about for years, this is a sports story of a generation. Someone with that level of star power, with the protections of a $100 billion industry because he makes the NFL hundreds of millions of dollars with that level of protection and that level of power and that level of influence and that level of resources he is going to be protected and enabled within the construct of the corporation and people are financially going to support him and support cleveland in their decision to trade for him give him 230 million dollars of fully guaranteed money on a contract the largest such in the history of the NFL. And we'll get to that stuff later on in the show because how we talk about a sexual predator returning to our Sundays and how we talk about him within the construct of this dumb space when most people agree he did not receive adequate accountability for his sexually predatory behavior, how we talk about that within the context of his return and being enabled and as Ashley Solis, the the first and most public-facing victim of Deshaun Watson's abuse, detailed to Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel, feels like he's being rewarded for the behavior that he's engaged in. When that's what we're talking about within this context, it's very important to talk about how we're going to discuss his reintegration into normalcy and how the NFL is going to look the other way around the situation. And it's important to talk about it now while there are still weeks and weeks away from his return. And we'll get to that in a bit because what's always important every time we talk about Deshaun Watson is to talk about the moral and ethical stance and what Deshaun Watson has engaged in, talking about the legal aspects of his case, talking about any NFL aspects of the case last because it is very important to make clear distinctions about what we are talking about when it comes to Deshaun Watson and setting the football stuff aside until we address the moral and ethical conversation and the legal conversation and empathize with the victims whose lives have been permanently affected by Deshaun Watson. So let's start off by talking about what Deshaun Watson has engaged in over the last three years. Deshaun Watson has had 25 women bring civil lawsuits against him for sexual misconduct, sexual harassment, sexual abuse, and sexual assault. And Deshaun Watson went to court following... When those first came out, Deshaun Watson was not placed on any administrative leave. Uh, The Houston Texans decided to sit him for a full season while he was going through a criminal court process because two victims brought criminal charges against Deshaun Watson alleging sexual assault. The bar for sexual assault is incredibly high in Texas, and so after a year, almost a year to the date, it was about 360 or something days after Deshaun Watson's first civil suit and ultimately within the next 48 hours, the first 17 civil suits were brought against him. One year later, criminal charges were dropped in the state of Texas because they could not move towards a prosecution. Again, the criminal bar for sexual assault is incredibly high in Texas, and there was not enough to move forward with a criminal prosecution based on the evidence that they had received and the fact that the Justice Department in Texas, as, as, is, as is the case in many states and many cities, 
is not equipped to handle cases of sexual crimes. We talked about this last month with Matt Areza in San Diego State and the chronic systemic issue with prosecuting and collecting evidence when it comes to sexual assault and sex-related crimes. So Deshaun Watson's criminal charges end up being dropped. The 25 civil suits end up proceeding. Ultimately, we know that the end of that is that Deshaun Watson is going to settle because Deshaun Watson is a very famous person with infinite resources and access to continue to make more money, such as Deshaun Watson is going to do with the Cleveland Browns and as he did with the Houston Texans while he was fighting his civil suits. Deshaun Watson made $38 million during the 2021 football season, and he did not play a single game for the Houston Texans. Whether that was a wink-wink agreement between Houston and the NFL to have Deshaun Watson sit, or whether it was Houston protecting their best trade asset and quite possibly the biggest trade asset in the history of the NFL— Regardless of what the reasoning was, Deshaun Watson made $38 million in such lawsuit. Uh, We've consulted with legal experts and legal precedent that suggests that while the, the settlement details of the lawsuit are unknown based on precedent, Deshaun Watson could be looking at somewhere between anywhere between a $3 million, a $10 million bill. It's hard to speculate, and there are real victims within this case. And again, part of the settlement is that the details were not disclosed. 25 women end up bringing civil suits against Deshaun Watson. This week, a 26th woman brought a case against Deshaun Watson in uh, Harris County in Houston. That lawsuit documents sexual coercion that Deshaun Watson engaged in. We've heard from reporting done by Jenny Vrentas of Sports Illustrated and now of the New York Times that Deshaun Watson met with 67 massage therapists between 2000 and 17 and when the lawsuits were brought against him in 2021 Deshaun Watson alleges in his depositions that he only saw 30 to 40 massage therapists uh, which would match the amount of people who have publicly come forward again reporting has debunked that and deemed Deshaun Watson to be not credible Uh, among the now 26 women who have brought cases uh, civilly against Deshaun Watson or criminally Of the 26, we also have an additional four women, at least four whom we know of, who have uh, detailed what Deshaun, have detailed interactions of sexual harassment and sexual assault with Deshaun Watson anonymously in reporting done by Jenny Vrentas of Sports Illustrated and the New York Times. We linked the reporting to that story beginning in March of 2021 and then the big story that Jenny Vrentas did, which also brings the Houston Texans' involvement into the story, speaks to more women who previously had not come forward and come forward with details of the sexual harassment and sexual assault that Deshaun Watson engaged in with them. Between those two pieces, we have four women who have brought forth details of sexual assault against Deshaun Watson and are not pursuing or have not pursued civil lawsuits against Deshaun Watson, which means we know of 30 women whom Deshaun Watson has engaged in sexual assault or sexual harassment with, and we know that within a within a three-and-a-half-year period, Deshaun Watson met with 67 known massage therapists. Again, the full reporting of these stories is has been documented well by reporting done by Sports Illustrated and the New York Times and Jenny Vrentas. Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel back in May did a full detailed story on 
the uh, assault and pattern of sexually predatory behavior that Deshaun Watson engaged in. They speak to Ashley Solis, who has been the most public-facing victim of Deshaun Watson's sexual abuse in both the beginning process in March of 2021, and she speaks on camera in this real sports story. Kyla Hayes, another victim, speaks on camera in this story, and we get to hear from victims who have gone public with their accounts of sexual assault and sexual abuse by Deshaun Watson. We have done six hours of reporting on this, and many of the stories I won't be able to address here because I don't have them in front of me. We've done podcasts going back to May, in which we de- we discussed the Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel story that was done on this case, and new details that came to light from reporting on this, following the depositions from the civil trials as well. Um, we did a podcast June 8th. That was an hour-long conversation about the Jenny Vrentas reporting from the New York Times, which again, you can read that in the description to this episode. There's a link. June 22nd, we did a podcast. June 27th, we did a podcast. August 2nd and August 19th, we've also done cases once the suspensions were handed down, which represents the final form of accountability, which we'll get to those coming up later, but I do want to reiterate Reporting done by Sports Illustrated, reporting done by the New York Times, reporting done by Bryant Gumbel brings more details to light in addition to the stories of the 30 women who have brought forward their experiences of Deshaun Watson sexually assaulting them and sexually harassing them. We've done podcasts on June 8th, June 22nd, June 27th, August 2nd, and August 19th with more details that I will not get to within this podcast. Some of the stories and some of the depositions that these women have given detail how Deshaun Watson repeatedly ejaculated on their bodies. Uh, He would refuse to wear towels as standard procedure within massage therapies. Uh, In many of these cases, he threatened the women after the interactions when they were either crying or in fear or shock where he talked about how he has a career and they have a career and they don't want to have something happen to either of those. That's a a paraphrased quote from the Jenny Vrenta story. There have been a handful of cases that detail sexual coercion in which Deshaun Watson repeatedly asks for some sort of sexual favor and then out of fear, they end up engaging in sexual behaviors. Sometimes there were repeated interactions afterwards uh, because of fear in those situations. And many of these accounts are public in depositions. Reporting has sifted through a lot of them. Again, we've discussed many of these cases in detail, including reading directly from depositions and from reporting done by Sports Illustrated and the New York Times. Again, June 8th, June 22nd, June 27th, August 2nd, August 19th. Those podcasts have more accounts when we're talking about the conduct and behavior that is an unprecedented amount of sexually predatory behavior, sexual assault, and predominantly attack, I mean, overwhelmingly in all of these cases, engaging in this behavior with massage therapists, using these interactions before he gets there, intending to have some sort of sexual interaction, and then whether or not he received consent engaging in those sexual interactions, regardless of the consent of the victims. And we have 30 women who have come forward, now 26 who happen to file lawsuits, and four who anonymously have come forward in reporting done by Sports Illustrated and the New York Times over the past year and a half. 
legally, Deshaun Watson, again, as we detailed when we were explaining the timeline, he had criminal charges that were brought against him, and Deshaun Watson ultimately ended up having those dropped. As we mentioned, the, the bar for criminal sexual assault is incredibly high in Texas. I jumped the gun a little bit explaining the timeline of events, talking about that and how those police forces and legal systems are not equipped systemically to handle cases of sexual crimes, especially sexual crimes against women in states like Texas, for example, that have a high bar already for sexual assault. We talked about this with San Diego State and Matt Areza in a podcast that happened after the claim after the San Diego State case of football players engaging in raping a 17-year-old woman had been public. We detailed that once Matt Areza was publicly identified in a civil lawsuit as the person who had engaged in that behavior had engaged in raping a 17-year-old girl. This is a case across all sta- against most states and most cities where there's an issue with prosecuting these crimes. And ultimately, as we talked about, we knew that they were going to head to a settlement. And so on June 21st, 20 of the 24 people who had filed lawsuits against Deshaun Watson settled in their cases. A 25th person ended up dropping their lawsuit once their identity had to be made public. And of the 24 who were still pursuing a criminal or I'm sorry a civil lawsuit against Deshaun Watson 20 ended up settling on June 1st and then three more ended up settling before the NFL came down with their decision to give Deshaun Watson originally uh, an independent arbiter ruled a six game suspension which was then upped by the NFL to 11 games because ultimately they had final say over the decision and the August 2nd and August 19th episodes that we did detail more the how we got to that suspension uh, the arbitration process with Judge Sue L. Robinson who after going through the the process of hearings after so this is after 20 of the 24 women settle with Deshaun Watson in court and again we don't know the details of those settlements it's financial penalties and it's more so what that money represents for the victims than it is the money itself so it's okay that it's anonymous it uh, that it's undisclosed and that we don't know the details of that it doesn't detract from the case itself it's more so representative of a settlement from a rich and powerful person so after that the process moves to the NFL's made-up judicial system, the the personal conduct policy and investigation. And because, as detailed in the Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel story, Deshaun Watson had and and the NFL began investigating this case. And because the NFL was, uh, in many cases, asking victim-blaming type of questions, because the NFL, as Tony Busby described it, felt like they had to investigate this case more than they actually wanted to identify the truth. At a certain point, Busby and the women stopped cooperating with the NFL because of the way the NFL was conducting their investigation. Ultimately, the NFL only got to talk to 11 victims and could only bring four of the 25 cases to arbiter Sue L. Robinson to prosecute and determine a suspension for Deshaun Watson. So the NFL was ruling on only four of the 25 cases because they only used the details from their own investigation. Back on August 2nd and June 27th, we detailed how they should not have done that. 
all the evidence was out there, but they were only using their in-house investigation, which according to Tony Busby, the NFL felt like they had to do instead of wanting to do. The NFL should have used all the evidence that was available, including depositions from Watson in each of the two dozen civil cases that had made it to depositions. And so they only had four cases with which to rule on. Judge Sue L. Robinson deemed Deshaun Watson to be not credible and deemed the accounts of the women and the lawyers to be more credible and ruled that this is an unprecedented behavior of sexual predatory conduct while only evaluating four of the cases and having 11 of them spoken to in the case of the NFL investigation. And then based on precedent, Sue L. Robinson ruled that while the NFL is trying to change their personal conduct policy to be more strict when related to sex-related crimes, that four cases based on precedent of non-violent sexual assault, which is a direct quote from Sue L. Robinson's 40-page release uh, statement, or I guess it was the findings of the investigation and her ruling, Nonviolent sexual assault on four cases was worth a six-game suspension based on precedent. And the precedent she was ruling on was in part Jameis Winston being suspended three games for groping an Uber driver and one case of nonviolent sexual assault as the language Sue L. Robinson uses a direct quote. It's not the language I would use. It's the language of a direct quote. One game or one case of nonviolent sexual assault was a three game suspension. Four cases will equal a six game suspension based on precedent. The NFL had the last call when it came to a suspension. They wanted to go for a year plus a significant punishment. The NFL Players Association, who is forced to defend their client, the NFL Players Association is in a position where they have to defend their client because that is their purpose. The NFL Players Association thought that no suspension was worthy because you look at the precedents set by Jerry Jones and Dan Snyder and Robert Kraft, who also engaged in what could be deemed nonviolent sexual assault, in the case of Dan Snyder, actual sexual assault, and there has been no accountability for those cases specifically. Therefore, the, the Players Association was arguing there should be no punishment. The NFL ultimately rules that an 11-game suspension plus a fine ends up being the punishment and if they had deemed that Deshaun Watson would be suspended a full season, his contract would have just been pushed back a year by the Cleveland Browns so that it wouldn't have started until 2022, or sorry, 2023. Instead, it starts in 2022, and he will only face about a $700,000 loss of earnings because he was only making $1 million against the cap because... The Cleveland Browns negotiated that when they traded for him, knowing that he was likely to be suspended for possibly an entire season, if not more. And so ultimately, the 11-game suspension felt like it was not enough of a punishment for most people drawing a moral and ethical line around, as Sue L. Robinson concluded, unprecedented sexual assault and sexually predatory behavior engaged in by Watson the settlement will represent financial damages. He paid a fine to the NFL of, I believe, $5 million and ended up having the 11-game suspension. Watson will come back in Week 12, and legally, he is pretty close to completed with his legal trial because when it comes to civil lawsuits, there is a statute of limitation of two years within the state of Texas, and so... 
Deshaun Watson's first lawsuit came forward in March of 2021. We know that there have been accounts of Deshaun Watson engaging in sexually predatory behavior and sexual assault up until those lawsuits were filed. Jenny Vrentas uh, has the reporting on the timeline of how many cases there are, and we've read it a bunch of times before, and I'm happy to read again how many times Deshaun Watson engaged in a sexually predatory or sexual assault behavior. And um, the latest one that we know of as of right now is March 5th of 2021. So up until March of 2023, assuming that Deshaun Watson has not sexually assaulted any more massage therapists in the time since the first lawsuit came public, Assuming that's the case, March of 2023 will be the last time that a civil lawsuit will be able to be filed against Deshaun Watson. Again, as we mentioned last week, a woman who detailed Deshaun Watson engaging in sexually coercive activity in December of 2020 finally came forward without uh, without Tony Busby being the lawyer representing her in that case as the 26th woman to come forward. There may be more cases. It won't have the jarring number of the 24 because the statute of limitations shall pass. Two civil investigations are still open. 23 have been settled and the NFL has ruled on their punishment. So there is no real form of accountability that is still coming for Deshaun Watson that has not already been handed out. And before we move into some of the NFL aspects of this case, I do want to go back and read when 23 of the 26, I guess we could say now 24 of the 26 of these incidents have come to when they occurred. Because when you read the list out loud, I've found that it's an incredibly effective way to articulate what we are talking about here. These, This is the timeline of Deshaun Watson's behavior that we know of. March 30th, 2020, at Plaintiff's Home in Texas. April 19th, 2020, at Houston Spa. May 28th, 2020, at Watson's Home in Houston. June 2nd, 2020, at a Houston Spa. June 7th, 2020, and August 24th, 2020, and in late August or early September 2020, at a New Use Salon Spa. June 2020 and August 17th, 2020, at a hotel and later spa in Houston. July 2020 at Plaintiff's Home in Houston. Plaintiff dropped, this is the person who dropped their lawsuit once it became public. July 2020 in Arizona. Four sessions between July 2020 and September 2020 in Texas. July 15th, 2020 at a home in Beverly Hills, California. August 2nd, 2020 at a hotel in Houston. August 5th, 2020 and August 9th, 2020 at Plaintiff's Apartment. August 28th, 2020, Houstonian Hotel Club and Spa. September 2nd, 2020 and November 17th, 2020 at Deshaun Watson's home. Multiple encounters between September 9th, 2020 and October 2020 at a Houston spa. September 24th, 2020 at a rented room in a Houston salon. Two sessions between October 19th and around November 2nd, 2020 at the plaintiff's office in Houston. October 8th, 2020 at a Houston spa. October 19th, 2020 at a plaintiff's office in Houston. November 6th and November 10th, 2020 at plaintiff's mother's house in Texas. November 9th, 2020 at plaintiff's office in Houston. On or about December 18th, 2020 at the Houstonian. The newest lawsuit that was filed this week is sometime in 2020 of December. December 28th, 2020 at Houston office building. Sometime in 2020. 
January 28th, January 21st, 2021 in Houston, March 5th, 2021 at a massage therapy business in Sandy Springs, Georgia. That is 24 of the 26 lawsuits that have been filed against Deshaun Watson and the timeline of these incidents spanning across an entire year of time from March 2020 through March of 2021. Again, we know that over the last three and a half years, Deshaun Watson has met with 67 massage therapists, according to Jenny Vrentes of Sports Sports Illustrated and now the New York Times. And we know that Four other women have come forward and detailed their accounts to Jenny Vrentas, which makes it 30, of which we publicly know, in which Deshaun Watts engaged in sexually predatory behavior, sexual abuse, or sexual assault. So every time we talk about Deshaun Watson and what I've called over and over again a sports story of a generation— There will never be someone with this level of stature and fame and football ability— standing accused of this level of unprecedented sexually predatory behavior and unprecedented crimes against women. And every time we talk about Deshaun Watson, I want to make sure that I give the proper context and proper empathy to the victims. When we were talking about the NFL's made-up legal system that they created in the aftermath of their debacle with Ray Rice and sponsors threatening to pull money from the NFL and the league facing a crisis in which Roger Goodell became crime and punishment person. The Players Association granted him that power to be crime and punishment person. It led to some missteps such as Ezekiel Elliott getting a six-game suspension. And through the history of the NFL personal conduct policy that's just kind of made up on the fly to protect the dollars... It is designed to protect the dollars and protect the people in power because prior to 2014, there was no personal conduct policy in the NFL. And within the eight years of experimenting with different levels of punishment for particular crimes and just trying to be a legal system that is entirely made up and trying to have some sort of legal, some sort of resemblance of control and exhibiting crime and punishment because that's what their sponsors dictate and what their customers dictate from the league as a whole. Now, I would recommend a different policy that totally restructures the way we think about the crime and punishment system within the NFL, although that is not the conversation at hand here. What is at hand is this specific case where, which is totally unprecedented in Deshaun Watson, which is a player who is accused of this level of sexual crimes and who stands to make the league hundreds of millions of dollars. No player as as much of a money-making vessel, which again, the NFL is a $100 billion corporation and each of their 32 teams are a corporation within the construct of a larger corporation. The NFL has showed time and time again their first priority is making money and their second priority is making money, and their third priority is making money, and protecting the dollars and protecting the people in power. Protect the power, protect the dollar. Those are the most important things to the NFL owners and the construct of this $100 billion corporation. When we talk about the National Football League and their their policy around this, and we talk about a player who is, before he is Uh, before it comes to light that he has committed sexual crimes on an unprecedented scale for a professional athlete. Before that, he is one of the seven players that matter the most in the sport. When he gets traded 
from Houston to Cleveland, which, as you may recall, he had already demanded his trade from Houston because of how terrible Houston's organization is. Side note, Jack Easterby got fired yesterday. And if you know anything about our beliefs and and knowledge about Jack Easterby, he's a team pastor who assumed power in a organization that has been torn down like none that has existed in the National Football League or any professional sport with the Houston Texans going from being up 24-0 against the Kansas City Chiefs to then losing Deshaun Watson, J.J. Watt, and DeAndre Hopkins within a span of a fee- of, of basically 12 months and within 12 months completely falling apart as an organization and they've gone like 9-30 and 30 since then. Jack Easterby got fired yesterday, which is a loss for white entitlement, and it's always good when white entitlement loses. That's a side note to the point where Houston Texans, uh, as we found out with Jenny Vrentas, are enabling Deshaun Watson's sexually predatory behavior, and when they trade him to Cleveland, it is the largest trade by far in the history of the National Football League. Three first-round picks and a $252 million fully guaranteed contract to a sexual predator. As Ashley Solis detailed before, we are talking about someone who is being rewarded for this behavior and being rewarded by being granted his release from Houston via trade and getting a fully guaranteed contract as a result. The optics of him being rewarded is something that does not serve the NFL's bottom line well, except for the fact that when he returns, he stands to make hundreds of millions of dollars. And so when we talk about Deshaun Watson's return and we talk about the money that is being made for the Cleveland Browns, the Haslam family, for Kevin Stefanski, for Andrew Barry, and for the league as a whole, it's important to talk about the first and most important context is that we should be withholding dollars from the Cleveland Browns. As an as a individual and as a group of football fans, specifically those in Cleveland, you should be withholding dollars from the organization if you believe that trading for a sexual predator is something that is morally and ethically wrong, so much so that you want to hold the organization accountable for this. There have been many conversations about Cleveland Browns fans leaving their fandom behind, not wanting any part of this team and having to cheer for a sexual predator coming out of their organization. And this has been a conversation that exists within the stupid sphere of sports radio, which is, what is my personal connection to this tragedy and to this person committing sexual crimes against women instead of empathizing with the women themselves and actually looking to correct that behavior on a broader scale. When we make a personal connection to it and the stupid connection is, I root for this football team, we have to make those moral and ethical decisions. And again, everyone draws the moral and ethical line in different places. When we were talking about the suspension for Deshaun Watson, the thing I have reiterated from the beginning and I reiterate now is that I hope that whatever the NFL decides with their made-up rules and their made-up personal conduct policy that didn't exist until 2014, I hope that it provides some sort of accountability and some measure of closure for just some of the women who are victims and some of the families of these victims in in this case. I hope it provides some level of closure because ultimately the NFL is never going to be able to hold their employee accountable when he stands to make them so much money. And when every system that has been refined and corrected over 25 years to protect the powerful people and protect the dollar are being implemented to where Deshaun Watson is rewarded by getting a fully guaranteed record-setting contract and gets to pick the team that he plays for and has a row of NFC South teams lining up to interview him for the right for Deshaun Watson to play for their team. Atlanta, Carolina, New Orleans, 
all sat down for interviews where Deshaun, where they had to pitch Deshaun Watson on playing for their team, not the other way around. They were lining up to trade for Deshaun Watson. When we're talking about that level of power and that level of wealth and the systems in the NFL are designed to protect those who stand to make the league hundreds of millions of dollars over the next 15 years. When all the systems are set up to protect that person, there is no way they are going to reach an appropriate measure of accountability. And according to most, Deshaun Watson did not reach an appropriate measure of accountability with the original six-game suspension ruling and the ultimate 11-game suspension that came from the NFL's decision. And there was no way there was ever going to be an adequate level of punishment because all of the systems are designed to protect the money and protect the powerful person who stands to make the league a lot of money because he's one of the 8 to 15 players that actually changes the landscape of an organization just by virtue of him existing at that position and as the skill of player that Deshaun Watson has shown to be in the past. There is no measure of accountability that was going to be enough. And all I've said from the beginning is I hope that whatever they come to helps provide some measure of accountability and some level of justice and possible closure to the victims and their families of Deshaun Watson's sexual abuse. I don't know those people personally. I don't know if that suspension did enough to actually provide some level of closure. I know that that contract extension and allowing him to be traded couldn't have helped in any of those contexts. We've heard Ashley Solis talk about him being rewarded for his conduct and the the trauma that that reaggravates as they're continuously pursuing civil suits against him and the fact that any amount of money they receive will pale in comparison to the excess amount of money he stands to make and the NFL stands to make off of his labor over the next few years. And so I articulate to Cleveland, withholding the dollar is the most important, and there's nothing to really do now because the decision's already been made for the next four years. If you want us for a for a phase of your life, four to five years is not an insignificant period of people's lives. Most of us are incredibly different people than we were four to five years ago. I know I can speak for myself and say that. For the next four to five years, is this something you want to support and is this something that you want to give your dollars to as a corporation? That is a moral and ethical choice that individuals are making, and it's a personal connection to this story because they happen to root for the football team that Deshaun Watson got traded to. I know that I personally would want nothing to do with that situation, but it doesn't matter what I think. This is just the way that sports fans and Cleveland fans and all that shit that I talked about about your hometown and connections to this loving thing, it's hard to let that go because of what the emotions of the past and what you thought in the future were going to represent with this corporation that traffics in the emotions business. That's an incredibly difficult decision to make, and it's a moral and ethical stance that some people are willing to take, other people are not, and everyone's going to draw their moral and ethical lines in different places. Just as the length of suspension for Deshaun Watson was going to be determinant based on people's moral and ethical stance. Everyone was going to draw the line in different places on what sort of accountability should Deshaun Watson get. And the evidence of this case, without putting judgment or morals and ethics within to this, the morals and ethics that you should be applying are empathy to the victims first and foremost. And I mean, I say secondarily, but really tertiary or the fourth or fifth most important thing is getting to this football point. And we've done our best to articulate that on this. This is far from the most important case when it comes to the morals and ethics of this. The evidence suggests that a corporation that has spent 25 years 
protecting the dollar, protecting the power, and is now worth $100 billion. If you add up all 32 NFL teams, it's worth $100 billion. A $100 billion corporation that has spent decades protecting power and protecting the dollars was never going to find adequate accountability for the crimes of someone who stands to make them so much money in the future. And someone who himself stands to make so much money and has made a ton of money even throughout this process. $38 million in 2021 and guaranteed $230 million over the next five seasons. Someone who has made a quarter of a billion dollars guaranteed since his lawsuits have come to light and since his sexual abuse has come to light. There was never going to be a situation where a powerful person in a system that protects powerful people and protects the money was ever going to get adequate punishment. That's just what the evidence suggests. It's not saying that the NFL made the right or wrong decision with Sue L. Robinson. It means there was never a scenario where adequate punishment was going to be handed down because the corporation protects the dollars. And so this leads into the conversation about what happens when Deshaun Watson returns. Because If proper accountability has not been met, if there is no scenario where Deshaun Watson is going to face proper accountability for his sexual crimes and his sexual abuse and his sexual assault, if there is no circumstance in which the proper accountability is ever going to be reached for, as I've talked about before, an unprecedented level of star player, one of the 15 players who adds value to your team just by being there and stands to make the NFL hundreds of millions of dollars over the next 15 years of his career. If that person is never going to face adequate accountability for his actions and is going to be protected within the construct, how do we talk about that person within the construct of football? And again, this is like the sixth most important thing that comes up around this case. It's important to finally talk about because we are coming to a place in which Deshaun Watson is about to return within the next four to five weeks. How do we talk about this person within that context? I've waited 40 minutes to get to this point by laying out all of the important moral and ethical points, the legal standpoints, all of the things that are more important to this case than talking about how do we reintegrate Deshaun Watson by force when we feel that there is no proper measure of accountability and when evidence suggests that there is no proper accountability that could have possibly been handed down for the types of crimes that we are talking about. When the evidence suggests that, how do we reintegrate someone who hasn't faced proper accountability for his actions? And the first and foremost important thing, which we've talked about before, withhold the dollars. At this point, the dollars have already been handed out. It's fully guaranteed. There is no more way to withhold the dollars other than to say, if a situation like this happens in the future, I will not be supportive of the NFL or supportive of the Cleveland Browns, specifically. Now, that doesn't mean a full boycott, perhaps. Perhaps you draw the moral and ethical line in different places. Maybe you don't buy that extra ticket. Maybe you don't buy that NFL Sunday ticket package. Maybe you don't pay for $4.99 a month of NFL+. Plus. I know personally for myself, I've reached a place where only the basic YouTube TV package is the only thing I'm purchasing from the NFL. That's the only way I'm financially supporting the NFL is by watching the games. Now, unfortunately, that's where 60 to 70% of NFL 
football-related revenue comes from. Now, the reason it's a $100 billion organization is because, or the reason the NFL is a $100 billion corporation is because of the real estate and the plots of land that these stadiums are on that's worth billions of dollars. But in terms of NFL-generated revenue, watching the games does make up a good portion. Those television contracts make up a good portion of their revenue in the first place. So the bare minimum I can offer is watching the league financially. I also have a platform, and it's a very small platform, obviously. It's, it's you know, 200, 300 people, a podcast that generates enough money to get tickets to watch Arizona and Utah next month. For people who have media outlets and people who have media power to influence culture, shall we say, power to influence the subcultures of football, do not engage in Cleveland Browns talk. Do not engage in Deshaun Watson football talk. This is a compromising position if you work for an NFL-affiliated partner. So say ESPN, NFL Network. NBC has a little more leeway in content, but they are an NFL partner. Amazon. If you're consuming through CBS or Fox, these are league partners and they are compromised in what they can and cannot talk about. But that's NFL propaganda that you're getting in a lot of these cases. And the thing that I've said for years I, I find so disheartening about football specifically is that so much of the media content around football is through the prism of NFL-owned media outlets, which, by the way, is done intentionally by the NFL. The NFL with ESPN and NFL Network, which are the predominant reporters when it comes to, like, Adam Schefter breaking news, Tom Pelissero, Ian Rappaport, the people that we focus on the most in the sport happen to work for the league or work in partnership with the league. And that's just the money being able to control the narrative and being able to control the content that's being discussed on the air for a good portion of it. And so if you work for a league media partner, there's obviously a compromise and you pick and choose your battles. And I totally understand the conflicts of interest and compromises that have to be made there. For people who don't work for media outlets, don't talk about the Cleveland Browns. Don't talk about Deshaun Watson. If you're going to talk about it, do it through a long-form podcast like we're doing now. That's what I've found is the best way to hold these people accountable. Because if you normalize, the NFL is going to do their best to normalize conversation around Deshaun Watson. It might take years, and it's going to take people within the construct of these paradigms pushing back against the NFL in order to substantiate real meaningful change. But that's just because ESPN, NFL Network, NBC, CBS, Fox... They have so much of a grip on the NFL media landscape and influencing the culture of football. They have such a significant influence specifically in that sport that it's difficult to not talk about football when you're being paid to talk about football by the NFL. It's hard to, within the construct of the NFL is signing your paychecks, to say, Let's talk about sexual crimes that a star quarterback is committing. Let's talk about how the NFL has not held him properly accountable because of the systems that they've created that protect power and protect money. It happens. It happens when a new lawsuit gets filed against Deshaun Watson. It happens when a Dan Snyder report comes out, and then it cycles through the news story. It happens with Deshaun Watson. We talk about it for a week. We talk about it for two days. 
We have a verdict come down, six games, okay, let's debate too too much, too lenient. Goes to 11 games, okay, let's talk about the crimes, let's talk about the humanizing aspects of this, and then let's move on. We did it on this show. We talked about it June 8th, June 22nd, June 27th, August 2nd, August 19th, and then haven't talked about it for two months. Today's October 18th. We went eight weeks without talking about this case. And there weren't new developments that we could add layers to. The new development that's coming up, and I guarantee you in four weeks, you're going to hear conversation shift back to this, is Deshaun Watson is playing football again. Let's talk about it. For that week that he returns, let's talk about it. For the two days before he returns, let's talk about it, but let's not talk about it on the broadcast. Only within the confines of football can NFL media outlets talk about Deshaun Watson. And not engaging in not just Deshaun Watson talk, but holding Cleveland accountable by not talking about the Browns and not giving them a platform is a great way to hold them accountable because suffocating their access and suffocating their exposure culturally and with media coverage is a great way to hold them accountable for their actions. Intentionally withholding conversation about the Cleveland football team and intentionally withholding conversation about Deshaun Watson's football ability is a great measure of accountability. And this is the same thing I would articulate when it comes to talking about Kanye West and talking about Antonio Brown. Don't give them a platform. Don't talk about them. Acknowledge the news. Acknowledge when Kanye West says anti-Semitic comments. Acknowledge those points. Have discourse about anti-Semitism. Don't continue to give them a platform. And if people will continue to give them a platform, don't retweet that. Don't give it life and let it continue to fester. When Antonio Brown tweets something inflammatory, don't inflame it. If you let it die and you take away the platform, the flame will not grow. And the same thing exists with Cleveland. The, the larger the flame grows, the more that it's going to, I mean, I don't want to say burn stuff down, but it's going to burn away the conversation about Deshaun Watson's sexual abuse and ultimately let them get away with the power structures that they've put in place. And again, there are so few measures of accountability because we're talking about a $100 billion corporation. And even Deshaun Watson's behavior is not enough to get football fans at large so disgusted that they will give up not just working for this sport, but watching the sport and consuming it. I know myself, I'm working to have a more healthy relationship with football. Uh, Mike Golick Jr. on Twitter posed the question, what would it take at this point for you to quit football? And for me, I'm working to not quit football, but slowly but steadily just consume less of football. Working in sports is the thing that I'm fascinated in, and working in football is something that is incredibly fascinating, and I'm great at doing analysis now. I'm great at doing football analysis. The, the X's and O's breakdown I did on Monday, I'm super proud of that, and I'm great at, dis at dissecting macro-level views of the sport at large. And I've gotten great at that because I've committed hundreds of hours to that craft because of my interest in making sports my profession. And I don't think that watching as much football as I do is something that I feel makes me a better person. And talking about the Cleveland Browns at this point is not necessarily a moral or ethical stand for myself. It just feels like the right thing to do. And so you won't hear me talking about the Cleveland Browns on any sort of football context. And I know we talked about this with DSD. I know that's a little unfair to Miles Garrett, Nick Chubb, and those Cleveland Browns players. And at the same time, it's the right thing to do. And not giving them a platform 
is the best way to hold someone accountable when you have that media position. Not talking about the football team, not talking about the results. We haven't talked about a Cleveland Browns game once this year, and we'll not talk about a Cleveland Browns game the rest of the season because that's some measure of accountability that, again, won't actually make a meaningful impact. It just feels like the right thing to do. And if 10, 20, 30, 40 media outlets larger than myself followed up on this, it would be an incredibly healthy way to hold the Cleveland Browns accountable because if you remove their access, it's a measure of accountability that will ultimately impact the bottom line because shame can still govern decisions. If there are accountable, if there's accountability for actions, shame and accountability are effective measures. And so at this point, it, it falls on us to be the accountability systems. I heard a great quote about this one time where we're always looking to other people to be accountability systems. We look to legal systems to take the burden of accountability out of our hands. Uh, we look to institutions to help give us solutions. We look to governments. Uh, we look to politicians. We look to organizations to help create measures of accountability and help take moral and ethical decisions out of our hands. And on this one, the systems of accountability have failed the victims of Deshaun Watson. And it was impossible for them to ever get adequate, adequate support and adequate justice for uh, and adequate accountability for the sexual crimes that Deshaun Watson committed because all of the systems and institutions are either not equipped to create accountability in sexual crimes or have protected the people in power like the NFL. And again, this is a failure of institutions. Systemic reform is necessary around issues related to women and issues related to crimes against women and crimes. I mean, again, we're talking about this within heteronormative relationships, crimes of sexual abuse and crimes uh, of domestic assault. These types of issues need massive reform. And, and again, I'm talking about predominantly men and women. Of course, it can be woman abusing a man. It can be a man abusing a man. It can be a woman abusing a, a woman and sexually assaulting a woman. These cases need massive reform. This is a systemic problem, and institutions have failed to create proper accountability measures. So the best thing we can do now is just try and create our own accountability measures that are the right thing to do. And the right thing to do around the Cleveland Browns for something as heinous as giving Deshaun Watson, a sexual predator, $230 million fully guaranteed, having him interview you for the right to go to your team, enabling him, protecting him, and rewarding him with a gigantic contract, the best thing to do is to not acknowledge your organization, to not give you the platform, and to not discuss your team. And if you're a league partner, that's incredibly difficult to do, and I understand the conflicts because the league is loaning you their platform on ESPN, on NFL Network, on CBS, on NBC. I understand how difficult that is. For everyone else, there is not an excuse. Do not give the Cleveland Browns a platform, and do not allow them to normalize the fact that Deshaun Watson is about to play football within the next four weeks. And you're going to see this happen on major media outlets over the next few weeks. The conversation is going to be about Deshaun Watson's return and we're only going to talk about it within the four weeks of his return and or sorry within the week of his return four weeks from now and that's why I so desperately wanted to talk about this within the middle of the busiest week of the sports year and weeks before Deshaun Watson returns because I want to put this out here do not talk about the Cleveland Browns do not talk about them within the context of football do not talk about them within the context of Deshaun Watson and do not talk about them about when it comes to whether or not they are a better team with or without him. Do not talk about Cleveland. And if you're going to talk about Cleveland, 
It should be with layering all the context and nuance that we discussed here on this podcast, like we discussed on June 8th, June 22nd, June 27th, August 2nd, and August 19th. That is the way that should be approached when talking about this case, and it's incredibly important to talk about this weeks in advance before Deshaun Watson returns, because we know how media outlets are going to respond. As much as this is an unprecedented case of sexual abuse and sexual assault, there's a playbook that has been followed for decades. And again, the NFL loans these people a platform and the playbook is protect the dollars. And if we're going to loan people a platform, there are certain taboo issues that are either expressly delivered or kind of wink, wink, unspoken, decided that we're not going to talk about this. And we t- we've talked about this with Morgan from Australia, listening to Mina Kimes talk about how she was wrestling morally and ethically with, I'm going to be asked to seriously talk about Deshaun Watson, the football player, and I can't do that. And using her podcast as a, a quiet, like without having the major, fl- she's she's a commenter for NFL Live, which is the flagship ESPN program for the NFL. If having to seriously talk about Deshaun Watson within that context is something that on a major platform is something she has to do. That's an incredibly difficult moral and ethical decision, and it's not, I understand not deciding that this is something that you're willing to risk your career on. That's incredibly difficult stance and an incredibly courageous stance to stand on. It's it's incredible, it's an unfair position to put anyone in in that spot, and the NFL has loaned you this platform, and so there are certain rules that are either expressly prohibited, are expressly disclosed, or are, are unspokenly understood about what you are going to talk about on NFL bot airwaves. And that's propaganda, and I hate that NFL propaganda now dictates a large part of the the media culture around football, but that's what football has invested billions of dollars into. You're talking about infinite resources with the media partners who need the relationship with the NFL. It's a terrible situation, and it's ultimately just like propaganda and capitalism mixed together into one confluence of events. For anyone who's not an NFL media partner, do not engage in conversation around Deshaun Watson and do not engage in conversation around the Cleveland Browns as a football team. Talk about this in a way that empathizes with victims and talk about it in a way that articulates the crimes that Deshaun Watson has committed articulately and applies the nuance that we have done over the last hour of this podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in here to the Take It Easy podcast. We have episodes every single day, Monday through Friday. Wired Up is available sometimes on Sundays. We'll be back again tomorrow. Take it easy, everybody.